First John, we're back in First John as we continue through this, this letter. And we're looking at chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, going to verse 17. It's printed in your bulletin. We also have Bibles for you. Um, it should be on each row in the front if you can grab one of those if you'd like. If you don't have a Bible, you can also take that with you, our gift to you. Um, yeah, it's good to be jumping in. I haven't preached in a while, uh, so it's good to uh, be back in uh, the New Testament. Last I preached was Isaiah 66, um, and so it's, it's good to be uh, preaching and, and, uh, and opening God's Word up with you this morning. Um, if you would please stand as we read God's Word. It says, God's holy, inerrant Word to His people. First John 2, verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless my words this morning? May it conform to your word and may it change us as as we seek to be conformed as your people to Jesus Christ. Bless us now as we contemplate your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So same letter but new preacher. So I wanted to give us a, a little bit of introduction into 1 John. Uh, the plan moving forward is to go 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 2nd and 3rd John are, are very short. Uh, they're each one, just one chapter each. So I figured we'd just take it all as one chunk. Um, <clears throat> I want to flip to chapter 5 real quick. So we're in 1st John, go to chapter 5. And look at verse 13. This is sort of his purpose statement of why he wrote 1 John, of why he wrote this letter. And he does something similar, actually, actually in his gospel, the gospel of John. He, he writes why he's been writing this, so that they might believe in Jesus Christ, right? But this is his purpose statement here in 1 John five thirteen. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know you have eternal life. And so here we learn two very important things about this letter. Number one, he's writing primarily to Christians. Primarily to Christians. This is a book for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. And what does he want Christians to get out of this letter? That you may know that you have eternal life. This whole letter, John says, is about assurance of salvation. It's actually one of my favorite Letters in the entire Bible, in the entire New Testament. It's such a sweet letter. And George talked about weeks previous, this is really like a father writing to the children that he has in the faith. The things he wants us to know, to be assured of your salvation. I think the the same thing for my children. I want them to know that they have eternal life. And that's what he wants for us. This book exists that we can be sure of whose we are, what we are to do, and where our destination is. But if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, this book is also for you as well. 
Don't tune out this message. Don't tune out 1 John. It's so good that you're here because not only is this for believers, it's for unbelievers who want answers to your big questions. My hope for you is that you'll listen, you'll consider what the scripture says and wrestle with what it means for your life. Do you have any assurance as to whose you are and what you're to be doing in this life and where you're headed ultimately? So listen and investigate and question Christianity and perhaps you'll like what you hear. So just a quick recap. So in chapter 2, John has not been telling us what to do necessarily, but what has been done for us in Christ, especially as you look at verses 12 through 14, the verses immediately preceding our text. So from verses 12 to 14, we get this poetic interlude that tells us everything a believer enjoys, all the gospel realities we enjoy by faith that have been given to us. Look at verse 12. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. So here we have forgiveness. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. So we have fellowship with God and we have victory over the evil one. These themes he repeats in this this interlude. So this is all that we have. We've been equipped. We've been gifted with these things. We have victory over the evil one, forgiveness and fellowship with God. But now John gives us the only negative command, the only do not of 1 John. So we should really pay attention. He only says do not one time in 1 John. It's right here. With all the gospel realities, everything that's true for the believer, we still have work to do. We still have commands to obey. And he warns us against loving the world. Loving the world. What does that mean? And what does he mean by world? We just sang about this is my father's world. I don't know if you remember um, or you've seen this around. I know Christians, we like our bumper stickers sometimes. And there's the fish bumper sticker you see a lot. There's also the not of this world bumper sticker. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, if you've ever seen it or, or know what it is. But, but it was very popular in the early 2000s. I think you still see it sometimes. Not of this world. That Christians are not of this world. Reminds me when Jesus says that 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 his kingdom is not of this world. And so while this is God's world, there are things in this world that do not come from him, that are different, that are sinful. And so he warns us against these things. But you know, many Christians have misinterpreted these verses for centuries, this idea of do not love the world. These verses have led to the formation of the monastic movement, which is the uh, idea of monks and nuns, Um, this idea that you should live in isolation and solitude within the walls of a monastery or a convent or out in the wilderness or in a desert or in the mountains. People have also read these verses to mean that we must abstain from any social movements or political action or cultural activities so as not to be stained by the culture. But these ways of thinking miss the mark because John actually defines what he means by world in verse 16. He defines the world with three descriptions, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. The world is John's shorthand way of saying all the ways that sin has twisted God's good creation. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, it must mean the organization and the mind and the outlook of mankind 
as it ignores God and does not recognize Him, and as it lives a life independent of Him, a life that is based upon this world and this life only. It means the outlook that has rebelled against God and turned its back upon Him. So John is not demanding that we reject the physical world or nature or going on hikes or looking at the sunset. He's not telling us to reject society or family and friends, but he's telling us to reject worldliness, all that defies God's rule over creation. He tells us to reject that kind of world, the spirit of the age that seeks to live apart from God. And so his message is clear to us, do not love the world, but do the will of the Father. But why? So why should we not love the world? I'm going to give you three points this morning, three verses, three points as to why we shouldn't love the world, but instead do the will of God. Number one, you cannot love the world and love God. That's the first reason. We cannot love the world and love God because the world is at odds with the love of God. Number two, you cannot love the world and resist its lusts. The desires of the world will consume you. Number three, you cannot love the world and enter eternal life. You cannot love the world and enter eternal life. The world's passing away, but his people will abide forever. So let's look at number one. You cannot love the world and love God. Verse 15 is clear. You can't love the world and also love God. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The point is that the world and the Father are at odds. They are mutually exclusive. In James 4.4, 4, we read very similarly, do, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It may be tempting to think that you can dabble in loving the world and also love God just as much as you did before, but it's not possible. One love must consume the other. The more you love God, the less you should love the, the world. The more you love the world, the less you will love God. But what does it look like? Um, William Greenhill, a 17th century member of the Westminster Assembly, preached on this verse, and he outlined 10 ways love of the world can show up in your life. Number one, he said, to love the world is to highly esteem it, holding it in high account. Number two, we love the world when our thoughts are fixed on the world. So ask yourself the question, how much time do you spend Thinking about worldly things. Anything in the world. Number three, men are said to love the world when they desire the world. When you want it so badly. Number four, love for the world is found in setting the heart on the things of the world. Same idea there, desiring it. Number five, we are said to love the world when we employ most of our strength in, on, and about the things of the world. That we work hardest at gaining the world. Number six, we're said to love the world when we watch all opportunities and occasions to get the things of the world, to buy cheap and sell high, to get great estates and houses and lands and things of that nature. Number seven, we love the world when we endure great hardships for it, when we'll do anything to gain the world. Number eight, men love the world when they favor the world the most. We listen to people and what they say, 
and the praise of men. Number nine, a man loves the world when he mourns and laments for the things of the world that are taken from him. How sad and angry do you get when you lose certain things that you desperately wanted and needed? And number ten, we're sad to, we're said to love the world when we are resolved to be rich and will have the world one way or another, that we will do anything to gain riches or whatever we want. So we must ask ourselves, what in the world is keeping me from the love of God, from loving Him and experiencing His love? What do you find yourself pondering about, fantasizing about, thinking to yourself, if I only had this one thing, I'd be truly happy and at peace. Friends, many people have chosen heaven over hell, but they have yet to choose heaven over earth. I'll say that again. Many people have chosen heaven over hell, but they have yet to choose heaven over, the, over earth. We all too easily love this world, and if we do, we will not have the love of God in us. That's what John warns us. Well, the second major reason why we shouldn't love the world is that you cannot love the world and avoid its lust. In other words, the desires of the world will take over. It will consume you. As I stated earlier, John defines what he means by world. He labels them in three ways. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let's look at each one of these in turn. The lust of the flesh, these are the things in the world, John says, that are temptations. Lust of the flesh has to do with our bodily cravings and if not kept in check, can lead us down sinful paths. It was the lust of the flesh that Satan used on Adam and Eve in the garden. Think about it. When the woman saw, she said she saw that the fruit was what? Good for food. The prospect is that it would provide nourishment. But this good bodily need led to our fall and to sin. And ever since, our God-given bodily desires can so easily be twisted by sin. And idolatry. Let's look at a few ways, several ways that this can show up. It can show up in our eating habits. It can show up in our sexuality. And it can show up in our desire for comfort, just to name a few. Let's start with food first. We live in a country where food availability is largely not an issue. We live in a time and place where there is an abundance of food that we can eat to our heart's delight. And we can overeat very easily. Or at the same time, we can also become so fixated on the right diet, the right eating, that we must get the right kinds of foods, that we must shop at the best stores of the highest quality, and we will look down our noses at those who choose otherwise. Either way, our fleshly desire for more and more and the best of the best can become all-consuming. Another way we see this play out is in temptations to sexual immorality. While sex is a good gift from God, it was intended to be enjoyed by one man and one woman in a loving covenant of marriage. And it's when, it, when it's used for any other purpose, it destroys lives, relationships, families, and communities. But another fleshly desire we struggle with here in our country is being comfortable. We love to be comfortable. I love to be comfortable. Nothing better than watching your favorite TV show, right, at 8 o'clock, in your favorite chair, your favorite drink, and while someone else is making your dinner, <laughs> right? Again, comfort, 
Comfort's a gift. It's a gift from God meant for our good, and a healthy existence means that you have a measure of comfort for rest and rehabilitation. But life was never meant to be a never-ending day at the spa. If all you do is live for your comfort, you'll end up despising anyone and everyone who gets in the way of your me time. This is the lust of the flesh, right? So it's saying, I want food my way. I want sex my way. I want comfort my way, God. And no one's going to tell me different. That's the lust of the flesh. The second is the lust of the eyes. What do we mean by this? Well, when Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, she saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. She saw the fruit. There is something undeniable about what we see with our eyes and the resulting sins that we struggle with, isn't there? What we choose to fix our gaze on slowly will begin to grab our hearts. Think of David, King David, right? As he's taking a stroll in the sunset um, on top of his rooftop palace and he glances at Bathsheba, right? Taking a bath. And he does a, a, a double take, and then he fixes his gaze. And the text says that David noticed that she was very beautiful. And two verses later, he's demanding her presence. There's something about what we gaze at, what we fixate on, that causes us to sin. Jesus said, if any man looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Did you know that the pornography industry is a $97 billion industry? That in 2018, more than 5.5 billion hours of pornography were consumed on a single website. It's a billion hours. With 33.5 billion visits to that one webpage in a year. What comes across your television and computer will have an impact on your desires and where they take you. And believe me, it's not a pretty place. The lust of the flesh and the eyes will consume you if you let them. The third worldly desire that John lists is perhaps the ringleader of them all, the pride of life. This can also be translated the pride in possessions or the things of life. So think wealth and status and jobs and money and power and accolades and reputations and honors and praise of men and so on. It's the same sin, again, that was offered to Adam and Eve. When they realized that the tree was desired to make one wise to be like God. It's the desire to look and feel God-like. The desire to feel divine and not need God in the first place. It's the mother of all sins. And so have you ever found yourself seeking this kind of pride? Have you bragged about your achievements, about your connections, about your status, about who you know? At the top. John says these lusts come not from the Father, but from the world. And one pastor explains it like this. The world is a seductive animal. It lures, it teases, it coddles, it coaxes. The world makes such sweet promises that stroke our egos and tantalize our passions. And what comes from the world does not come from the Father. It's seductive. It's tempting, right, to go this way. It's, it's hard to avoid it. And so we should, we should 
do some introspection. The question I have for you is this, which lusts are most irresistible to you today? Which ones are you most tempted by? The flesh, the eyes, or pride? It's good to do this kind of assessment, and we need to know how to guard against falling in these various areas. And John has laid out Satan's playbook, and now we're to be on guard. But there's one final reason that he gives why we shouldn't love the world. He says you cannot love the world and enter eternal life. You cannot love the world and enter eternal life. This is maybe the most important reason of all. Look at verse 17. He says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said regarding this, You may be proud of your personal appearance, but you will soon be old and haggard. You will be dying, and then you will have nothing to boast of. It is all passing. Wealth and riches and learning and knowledge and social status and all these things, they're vanishing. They have the seeds of death in them. Christian people, how can we glory in things like that? You know, I'm, I'm getting older, and one blessing that comes with aging, I know some of you guys are like, oh, you're young. I know. I'm younger than some of you. But one blessing that comes with aging is it's a daily reminder of the passing nature of this world, right? Your own body tells you that, <laughs> right? Your hairline, your waistline tells you that, <laughs> that things are passing, that this is temporary. And so much more when you see the world running to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, and it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't last. I keep a plaque in my office with a simple poetic quote, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, right? And it reminds me of this very verse, that this life, this world is temporary, is fading, is not lasting, that what is real, that what is lasting is the truth of God. And that is what you should live for. Do not be tempted off that path. Don't be tempted at something that is not going to last. Brothers and sisters, you can have the whole world, and it will slip away in a moment. You can become as rich as you like, comfortable as you like, full as you like, to what end? Where will it take you in the end? What joy and peace and happiness will it give you? And for how long? 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Is it ever enough? No. Everything in the world is passing away. It is not lasting and therefore it is not satisfying. The man who loves the world has all and has nothing. C.S. Lewis, Lewis, I'm just going to paraphrase, said something like, you know, the... I'm never satisfied by anything in the world, and that's one reason I know I was not made for this world. I was made for a better world, another world. But how do we not love the world and do the will of God? If you're like me, you've failed time and again. You've tried, but sometimes it feels like an uphill battle. So as we close, I want to remind you of the most important truth of all this morning, that we have a Savior who rejected the temptations of the world and did the will of God perfectly. 
You remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? In chapter 4 of Matthew, if you would please flip over to Matthew 4 with me, and we're going to look at that scene. Chapter 4, Matthew. Beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there Jesus says he's in the wilderness. He is fasting 40 days, 40 nights. And Satan comes to him knowing that he's hungry, knowing that he has, he's a human, right? So after 40 days of not eating, would you be hungry? I sure would be. And he tempts him to turn the, the stone into bread. And Jesus could have done it. He had the power to create food wherever and whenever he wanted to. But he said no. And he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He passed the test, the flesh, uh, the desires of the flesh. That's, that's the first card that Satan played, right? That was his playbook, number one, failed. Number two, here comes uh, devil's second attempt. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So here's the second uh, play that, that Satan is running in his playbook. Takes Jesus on top of the temple. Busy, everybody's there. He could see, they, could, they could see him if, if he revealed himself. And Satan's saying, just jump off. Jump off and have your angels catch you. And everybody will see how amazing you are and that you are the Messiah. And you can avoid the cross. Um, and Jesus says, no. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That would have been a spectacle. That would have been a, the desire, the lust of the eyes, right? Something amazing, something people would have praised him for. But he said, no. He passed the second test from Satan. So Satan tries a third time. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So what was Satan tempting Jesus with at the end there? To have it all, right? And to avoid the cross yet again. To have it all, to be be God, to be equal with God, Uh, To not be a servant anymore, but to be the king of the world. Right? That's that's the pride of life that he was tempting him with. And Jesus said, no, I won't do that. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for my people. And he said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so the, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So friends, here's the encouragement. Only Jesus obeyed God's will perfectly. You and I can't do that. Jesus is our only hope for eternal life. He rejected the world and its desires so that all who believe in him would not pass away but abide forever. How do you reject the world and do the will of God? You hope in the one 
who did it perfectly for you. That's how you do it. So would we have greater faith? That's what we need to ask for. Have greater faith in Jesus who conquered the world in our place. And let me end with this question. What's holding you back from that? What's holding you back from eternal life this morning? Is it the world? Is it the flesh? Is it your eyes? Is it your pride? And I'm encouraging you to put it away and look to Christ who did it perfectly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we need you. And we need you to reveal more and more of our struggle, of our sin, and to align our wills more with your will. We need Jesus because we can't do it ourselves. Uh, The world is too tempting. There's too much out there uh, that appeals to our flesh, that appeals to our indwelling sin, that we would fall flat on our face without your grace. And so we need you. Point us toward Christ. Point us to the victory we have who has overcome the evil one for us. May that be true for every single person here. In Jesus' name, amen.